The reading from God's Word comes to us this morning, the 20th chapter of Matthew, starting at verse 20. Matthew 20, and we'll continue on through verse 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be that it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you shall be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please be seated. I'm not necessarily in need of a verbal answer, but I'd like for you to ponder this question as we begin. How do you define greatness? For you, is it a statement of some type of financial prosperity? Your bank account's looking good? Is it perhaps what you're called at your job, the responsibilities that you have, and taking some level of pride in that? For your kids, is it maybe that they need to have the highest GPA possible? To be the best on their sports team, is it that they need to have the best singing voice imaginable? They need to have the, the, best, uh, the best record in the four by four? What do they need to be great? In the church, do we look at our brethren and sometimes say that this person is the best song leader, this person is the best preacher, the best elder, the best deacon? What are those things that make us have this oftentimes arbitrary comparison that makes us use the word great in a way that our Lord never intended? Greatness is complicated. And it gets no less complicated when we misdefine the term and then we misapply the term. When we go to Mark chapter 10 and in its parallel passage in Matthew chapter 20, what we find Jesus teaching all 12 disciples is that greatness in God's kingdom is very different from how it's perceived in the world. And in particular, what we'll, be, what we'll be boiling down is that greatness is found in service to God and to our fellow man. 
very briefly, we're going to just take a journey through this text, and as we're doing so, we have three crucial aspects of greatness that need to be considered, three aspects of greatness that need to be known and shown to the world around us for them to truly know that we are Jesus' disciples. First of all, we need to talk about the desire for greatness. Is it necessarily wrong to have aspirations? Is it necessarily wrong to have things to which we aspire, things that we want to accomplish? We'll talk about that. Number two, we'll need to discuss the cost of greatness. Greatness is expensive, but I don't mean that by monetary value. There's something much greater at stake when we talk about greatness, and it may mean everything that makes you who you are. And finally, there is the meaning of greatness the meaning of greatness. And I, by this, don't necessarily just mean a textbook definition. No. I mean, what is the impact of this teaching on our very lives? What would it look like in the world today if we practiced this teaching that greatness is truly found in service to God and to our brethren? Let's spend just a few moments thinking about this this morning. Starting in verse 35, the desire for greatness. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. There are a few things to consider first. This is a key presupposition with which we need to begin this entire discussion. James and John knew that only Jesus could give them greatness. I say this because sometimes we're a little too hard on James and John, I think. The worst accusation we could place towards them is that they're being secretive, they're being sneaky, they're doing what may be the equivalent of, of a child asking their mom a question because they know she'll say yes when the dad wouldn't say yes. This is more childish than arrogant. And yet James and John knew that in order to have greatness, which we know is what they go on to ask for, they knew that they could only have greatness by going to Jesus first. And before we start getting judgmental of them, let's consider that we don't always do that. We oftentimes want to just slide right past Jesus to try and find our path to greatness. Whatever sin is needed, whatever, whatever it takes to, to oppress others, to mistreat others, we want to do that. At least James and John had the humility to go to Jesus first and make their petition to him. James and John knew that greatness is something that is in Jesus' hands and that only he could give it to them. And we should also notice that Jesus allows them to make their request. It, it's not far beyond reason that Jesus already knew what they were going to ask before they asked it, right? And so when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It's as simple as that. He's giving them the opportunity to state whatever their request is to him. And we know what they go on to say. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And I want us to notice they seemingly ask this as a petition, not as a demand. The words that are used, it's grant us, rightly translated in the SV, it's, it's grant us this. It's not with any kind of an implication that they deserve this thing that they're asking for. This is something they are asking for as a petition. They know it's a big ask. 
In this petition, we find that these two brothers may have a few things mistaken, but they at least get some things right. They acknowledge that greatness is only found, it's only possible in God's presence. They know that the only way to truly be great is to first have closeness with God. Now we understand that they understood this as proximity to God. We may think of this differently, right? Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. It's a matter of God's character that makes him who he is. Greatness is only possible. It only exists in his presence. Let's just acknowledge that there is no such thing as greatness outside the kingdom of God. Whoever your favorite, your favorite musician is, your favorite actor is, your favorite political or economic thinker, I really don't care. There is no greatness outside the kingdom of God. There's no greatness outside of God and his glory. And when we try to have greatness apart from that, we miss the entire point, one of the key points of our entire faith. If we think we can be great without God, we need to go back to the very beginning and figure out why we were baptized, because clearly we missed something. We know that God is great, but we also learn that God is greater. Look in 1 John in verse 4, 1 John 4 and verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. These individuals who do not let Christ have any impact on them, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's greater. Greatness is only truly possible in the presence of God. And yet what we'll go on to learn is that true greatness must be rightly informed. The point of this is, yes, have your aspirations, have your dreams, but recognize that those dreams need to be brought to the submission of the cross. If I cannot lay these desires, these aspirations at Jesus' feet, then maybe I don't need to have them. And when we define greatness in Jesus' way, we find that it's not about accomplishments. It's so much deeper than that, and that's what Jesus will go on to show. The desire for greatness. Make sure that true greatness, make sure you understand that true greatness is rightly informed. Let's go on to verses 38 through 40 and talk about the cost of greatness then. The cost of greatness. As we just said, greatness is expensive, but perhaps not in the way that we think. We don't have to write a check for greatness. It's something a lot more than that. Jesus said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus offers a correction here. He's not seeking to chastise. He's clarifying a misunderstanding that these two brothers clearly have. He's showing them Okay, your enthusiasm is to be commended, but you do not know what you're asking for. He seeks to correct their misunderstanding. And we find that after Jesus says, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? He, they say, we're able. 
Now, I'm willing to imagine they didn't understand what Jesus meant by that. I'm, I'm, betting, I'm betting that they perhaps didn't realize that drinking the cup is meaning the cup of suffering and that this reference to baptism in this context is directly related to martyrdom. They probably didn't catch that. But then again, the text doesn't tell us. Let's assume that they did know. They responded favorably and accepted the terms. They said, we are able. You look here and in Matthew 20, we are able. And yet, Jesus maybe doesn't give them the response that they're looking for. He says, yes, you'll drink the cup that I'm set to drink, and you will, and you will be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized, but to give you the authority to sit, one at my right hand, one at my left, like you asked earlier, that's not mine to grant. He says in the parallel passage in Matthew that this is something that the Father is designated to do. Jesus guarantees suffering, not seats. We sometimes get this idea that just because we suffer in our faith that that sets us for some kind of special treatment in, in God's glory. And, and it's true. It's true that, if we, that when we denounce all that we have in order to, to be in the presence of God, there will be great reward for that. But make no mistake, the glory of God does not work on a class system. Eternity does not work on a scale when we are in the glory of God in eternity, that means we are in the glory of God for eternity. He guarantees suffering, and for that, maybe we won't get to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left, but one thing is for, is for certain, he is well pleased with us. If we want greatness, we need to count the cost. And what does that look like for you? Mark 8.36 says it this way, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You can have everything that you could ever want, but who cares if you're severed from God? Who cares if you never get to be in his presence? Everything that you did was worthless if you did not come to God's presence. Luke 14.33 says it this way, that if anyone does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. What does he say earlier, starting in verse 25 of that chapter? Leaving your family, leaving your friends, leaving prior belief systems that you held dear, whatever it may be, if you do not leave everything that you once held dear to you, you will never be able to be a disciple of Christ. We need to understand this, brethren. There's no way around it. There's no if, end, or button. There's no middle ground. Are we with Christ or are we with the world? If we want greatness, we need to count the cost. We need to consider what that looks like for us. So recognize that what Jesus shows us in this part about true greatness is that it is inseparable from sacrifice. It is inseparable from sacrifice. There's no way you can come to the cross of Christ and not give something up. The cost of greatness, it is the most expensive thing you will ever seek to purchase, and I assure you that it is worth it. And then finally, Jesus discusses the meaning of greatness. You see, the disciples have heard at least some part of this conversation, and they're mad. 
The text says that they're indignant, both here and in Matthew 20, that they are indignant at James and John. Not just the situation, certainly not at Jesus, but at those two specifically. And yet Jesus sees this as an opportunity to correct all of them. Look at what the text says, starting in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, these rulers of the, of the nations, people who are regarded as rulers, they're their masters, right? And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Notice that transition, notice that contrast, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want us to first notice that Jesus takes this opportunity to correct all twelve disciples. He, he hears the other ten getting mad at James and John. He doesn't say, you know what, you guys are right. J James and John, you guys are way out of line. No, what does the text say? He calls all of them to him. He summons them all to him and sits them down and corrects them. He corrects a misunderstanding. One brother said that perhaps this was because their indignance really exposed that they had the exact same desire as James and John. It's possible. But we do know for sure, beyond any shadow of a doubt, is that they were doing something that was in need of teaching. Jesus corrects all 12 of the disciples here. And what he goes on to make is a comparison. He goes on to compare the way that the world handles greatness and defines greatness and the way that God's people are to define and apply greatness. He says that the world defines greatness by power. People out there in the world who are godless, who couldn't care less about the glory of God and the greatness of God, they define it by being the masters of others, by being in power, by using every opportunity to showcase that power. That's how the world does it. Might makes right, the world says. But is that Jesus' teaching? Does that line up with what he would have us to believe? Does that line up with what he would have us to practice? I don't believe so. He states that while the world defines greatness by power, God defines greatness by meekness. There is no way around this. There's no way to read this claim to care about God's authority over your life and miss this key point. But it shall not be so among you. Might makes right. That is not the way of God's people. And what does he go on to say? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. It seems to me that exaltation requires a little humiliation. It seems to me that if we really want to be great, we need to learn to be the lowest of the low. God defines greatness by how far we are willing to stoop down, not how far we are willing to climb up. We are only elevated when we emulate Christ. 
They say imitation is the greatest form of flattery, but let me take it one step further. Without imitation, our faith does not amount to anything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It is right to see godly people around you who you believe are following the truth and are walking in the light and imitating them because you understand that what they're truly doing, what, who they're truly pointing you towards is Christ. But ultimately, our goal is to glorify God and not each other necessarily. What does James 4 and verse 10 show us to try and just make this even clearer for us? To humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and that he will exalt you. How does the hymn go? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do we sing it or do we believe it? I pray it's both. We are only elevated when we first emulate, when we first imitate Christ. And the point is this from verse 45. True greatness is defined by Christ-like service. Now, what does Jesus mean by this in verse 45? Came not to be served, but to serve. Well, certainly it's right for us to worship God. It's right for us to, to do what we can to be in subservience to him. But that's not all that this means. When we're talking about came not to be served, we're meaning that Jesus is essentially saying nobody can serve as Jesus' intermediary. Nobody can serve as his go-between between himself and the Father. He's already God. He's already righteous. We can't do for him what he did for us on the cross giving his life as a ransom for all of us. We cannot claim to have done that for God. We cannot claim to have done that for Christ. We do not make Christ better. He makes us better. True greatness is defined by Christ-like service. All 12 of the disciples needed this teaching. I think in some way or another, we all aspire to have greatness. And there's something natural about that. But we really need to make sure that we define greatness in the way that Jesus defines it in this passage and all over the, the word of Scripture. A few more passages to consider as we close. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 through 18. If the phrase slaves of righteousness bothers you, put in whatever word you prefer, servant, bondservant, it's really of no difference. The point is the same. When we depart from our lives of being slaves of sin and come to be slaves of righteousness, it means that we commit and give our everything to righteousness. We give our everything to imitating Christ. We don't go easy on ourselves. We believe in grace, but we certainly don't allow that to be an excuse for sin. We need to be slaves of righteousness. 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 10. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You may say, but I don't have a miraculous gift. Okay, the greatest gift that you have is love. You may not be able to lay hands on somebody, but I promise maybe someone just needs a hug from you. You may not be able to prophesy, but I promise what you can do is pray for them. You may not be able to heal their sickness, but I promise what you can do is support them and their family in times of need. What is it that we've been singing on Sunday nights? The greatest of these is love. We would do well to remember that. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And finally, Philippians 2, verses 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brethren, I don't claim for a minute that this is easy, and I also don't claim to have this completely down. None of us do. However, the clear teaching of Jesus Christ is that one of the ways in which we walk different from the way of the world is by rightly defining and rightly applying greatness. And what we find, this key point in Mark 10, is that greatness is found in service. Without service, we can never be truly great in the kingdom of God. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're hearing about Jesus for the first time or perhaps this isn't new to you per se, but you've been thinking about it for a while. If you have a need for prayers or further study, we'd love to do that for you. But if you'd love to come and be baptized for the remission of your sins, I promise you there's no such thing as a saved person who hasn't been baptized. If you need that this morning, we want to do that for you. If you are a child of God and you need prayers of any kind, you need something, we want to do that for you as well. If you have any need whatsoever, please show us how we can serve you as we stand and sing.